Well, if you've got a Bible, head on over to the book of James, uh, specifically chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Again, we're in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. My sermon title uh, this morning is uh, Warning Against Worldliness. Warning Against Worldliness. Again, chapter 4 of James, verses 1 through 10. I'd like to start by just asking a question to the congregation this morning. Have you ever in your life had to break up a fight? Have you? Have you ever gotten in the middle of a fight before? So my kids were little. They're probably a lot like your kids or grandkids or some of your aunts, aunties that don't have kids. But when my kids were little, there were numerous times where I had to, or my wife and I had to step in uh, between the children because there was a fight breaking out. Many of you would identify with that. Typically, when these fights would break out, when these conflicts were going on amongst the children, it was a desire for something they did not have. That's why they were fighting. Usually, it was because one of the kids wanted the toy that the other kid had. Well, the text before us today, James 4, 1 through 10, Pastor James is doing something. He's writing about a situation. Remember, James, the book of James is a letter. It's written by James. And what he's doing is he's writing about a situation in which there had been quarreling and fighting in the church. Christians are fighting in the church and outside of the church, right? We know that when people are fighting in the church, oftentimes people stop coming to church. So they might be outside of the church, but we know that he is addressing the situation. So just like a parent would step in between their own children to make sure they stop fighting over whatever it is they're fighting for, James is stepping between the adults who are behaving like children. So, and as James does, as James discusses this, and he, as he writes this letter, James is going to zero in on something, and I think it's important for you to grab this right away. He's zeroing in on this. What is the source of all of this conflict? Where's it coming from? Where's the actual source? Not just what they're fighting over, but where is it really coming from? Where is the root of all of these things? So with that in view, let's stand together and read the Word of God, starting with verse 1. Brother James says to us, what's causing the quarrels? And what, is, what causes the fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Remember, he's not talking about the physical act of murder. If you hate someone, you are a murderer. Remember, God looks at the heart. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 6. 
but, this is good news, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he's going to draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That is the holy word of God. You may be seated. Well, as you can see again, fun text, huh? (laughs) Well, James is once again throwing down, and he throws down hard, and he throws down fast, right? But to help you to understand something, why it is James is speaking like this, uh, and why he seems to speak with such intensity, consider this. James would be like, it would be like you speaking to one of your own children. Uh, think about one of your children reaching for a, 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 a boiling water, maybe a, a coffee cup that was full of just boiling, scalding hot water. So that's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's saying something. He's, he's locked in on something. It's like the kid reaching for that hot water. You don't just stay there and sit there in silence when this is happening. As a parent, as a guardian, if you're looking after a child, you would say to the child with intensity, watch out. This is dangerous. Because when we see people in trouble, we yell and we warn And I say that to you because James, the spirit of this letter, yes, it's tough, but also understand the words by James are said in grace. They're being said to us in grace, not to beat us up, but to help the people of God to draw near. That's what's on display. So again, this title of my message, warning against worldliness. We've got to warn people what worldliness is because not everybody knows what it is. We have to warn. So point number one would be friendship with the world, and we see that in verses one through five. You know, what is this friendship with the world? You know, Adrian Rogers famously said once, you can't just tip your hat to Jesus, you must bow your knee. In other words, we don't just say, hey, cool, Jesus. I'm pretty much on your team. No, he's saying a full surrender to bow our knees to this king, this king of kings. And obedience is the greatest proof that we are, in fact, devoted to this king that we say we serve. Remember, he's preaching or teaching to the church. A true faith, because we say, well, what is a true faith? Well, it can be described a lot of different ways. But a true faith is not so much receiving from God what we want, but accepting from God what he gives. It's your will be done, not mine. A life that has been transformed is transformed. And when we've been transformed in Christ, everything else follows. We're transformed in all areas. God promises to do such things. But as we learned last week, there are two types of wisdom. We know there's a wisdom that's from above, from heaven, and we know there's a wisdom from below. One will help us to walk this Christian walk, to walk the talk, 
and the other one's right from the pit of hell. And the world wants us to bite into their wisdom. It's from hell. And the Lord says, no, contrast that with what I have for you, the wisdom from above. And we get the wisdom from above in his word. So he's been setting this up. He's helping us to unfold and unpack all of this friendship with the world. And a lot of it is based on what not to do. And then, of course, what to do. So we're going to see a lot of contrasting in this uh, particular chapter today. But wisdom from below, in this context, would be friendship, friendship with the world. That would be wisdom from below, to be friends with this world. So what does friendship with the world look like? Well, we see that answer again in verses 1 and 2. Let's read it. What's causing the quarrels and what's causing the fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions, remember your passions, the church's passion, but let's make it individual for all individuals. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What is James doing? James is doing what I've already alluded to. He's focusing on the source of the problem. He's going after the root. And the proud heart is what he's after, what he's, he's identifying. There is a heart here on display that's not of, the, not of the Lord. It's of the enemy, right? It's a proud heart. So James is now stepping between the brothers and sisters and says, listen, have you not noticed something that's going on around here? Have you not noticed? You are fighting. This is ridiculous. This must stop. You are fighting because something is off in the heart. Something's not on. When we're on, that's a good thing. Something's off. He's dealing with it aggressively. Because the reason why it is we fight with one another, the reason that we devour and bite one another, is because of our own selfish pride. Not the world, but even in the church. So this is family business for James. It's family business. Not out there, here. We've got to get it right in here before we go out there. Who, if, if the church is fighting and beating up on each other, who in the heck in this community wants that? That's another way that we could really summarize parts of this chapter. The reasons why we fight is our selfish pride. Remember we said last week, you can't always see pride, but you can smell it from a mile away. It stinks, and it's not healthy. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan preacher, uh, he wrote a book called Thoughts on Revival. And in that book, he contrasts spiritual pride versus spiritual humility. Let me say that again. Spiritual pride versus spiritual humility. And what we're seeing here, I'll read them to you, but it's contrasting. Like, do this, but don't do this. And they're going to sound familiar to you, but this is really speaking to the heart of this particular passage this morning. Let me read you a couple so you'll get the flow. Spiritual pride 
it makes you more aware of others' faults than my own. Spiritual humility makes you far more aware of your own faults than others. Spiritual pride, it leads you to speak of others, speak to others' faults with an air of contempt or disdain. Spiritual humility is when you speak of others' faults, you, when you speak of others' faults, you do so with grief and mercy. There's compassion there. Spiritual pride leads you to separate from those who criticize you or, or you separate and avoid them all together. That's pride. Spiritual humility, on the other hand, it means you stick with the people in difficult relationships and you don't give up. You see the difference there. One is full of pride, which is wisdom from below, and one is from above, spiritual humility. A proud person is dogmatic about every point of belief and cannot distinguish between, between a major and minor point of doctrine. But a spiritually humble person is able to make that distinction. They are flexible. A proud person loves to confront because they like winning. Or, or they refuse to confront because they don't like controversy. Both of those things are what proud people do. But a spiritually humble person confronts when necessary. Because everything through prayer and petition, right? Let me give you a couple more. A spiritually proud person is often unhappy and they feel sorry for themselves. They are filled with self-pity because they are sure how life ought to go, and they are sure they deserve the good life. <clears throat> but we contrast that with this, a spiritually humble person. They, they believe that they should be cast off, yet it's by God's grace they know that they're able to live. What a contrast in those two personality types or those that have been saved and redeemed by the glorious king of kings. But I wasn't talking about a salvation issue. It could be. I'm talking about Christians. There are times when Christians behave poorly. There are times when Christians don't act like Christians. There are times when we fight and argue amongst ourselves. So Brother James is giving all of us a forearm shiver and he's saying something is not right with the church something's not right with the brethren something's not right inside the body because it's not right in the heart if it ain't right in the heart it won't be right in the body now look at the text 2b verses 2b the last part of chapter verse 2 all the way to 5 you do not have because you do not ask you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us? When we see this word jealously, I can't exegete it uh, to, to, uh, to complete satisfaction this morning, but I want you to think about this. 
I want you to think about if, I'll just use my wife as an example, been married to Louise for 31 years, and if some, you know, young guy started uh, writing her love letters and started to serenade her and started to let the whole world know, like, that's the gal that I want, I'm going to be jealous about that. She's mine. She belongs to me. And you see, when we're in Christ, we belong to the Lord. So when we start flirting with the world, the Lord is liking it to this, that we're having an adulterous affair. And he doesn't want us to have an affair. He wants us to love him. You see, so he's a jealous God, but he's a holy and a righteous God. He died for us. We've confessed our sin. We've declared that he is our provider, our God. And he's a jealous God. But when we want the satisfaction of our own desires, think about desires, we keep seeing that word in the text. When we want the satisfaction of our own desires, and we want the satisfaction of those, our own desires more than anything else, we're committing idolatry and worshiping something other than God. Worldliness and godliness cannot coexist. If you start flirting with the world, you're going to get pregnant. That's what happens. I mean, there are some big deals going on in our country right now. We cannot do something, well, I'll play in the gray area. No, we stand on truth. It's either truth or it's not. And when you stand on truth, you are going to be an enemy to the world. Period. They're going to call you bigots. They're going to call you all sorts of things. But you have to say, what is God going to call me? And you stand on truth in grace, in humility, in love. Love people enough to point them to the truth, you see. So we live in this crazy, fallen world. So we ask ourselves, worldliness and godliness, am I allowing it to coexist in my own life? I want you to notice that in verse 4, as James is calling them out yet again, he's calling them out and he says, you are an adulterous people. You are whoring after the world. What's the matter with you? Again, he's speaking to them in love. It's done in grace, but it's tough. Now, the Old, teach, the Old Testament teaches us that Israel would consistently stray from God and chase the world. And what did the Lord have to say about that over and over and over again? Countless times we see in the Old Testament that God is responding to their actions. We know in Jeremiah 3.8, he says, you're an adulterer. So James is using the language of God. He's calling it what he is. He cannot lighten it up. He cannot sugarcoat it. He has to call it the way that he sees it because the way that he sees it is the way that God sees it and he's just following after the Lord. He sees it the way the Lord sees it and he repeats what the Lord has to say. He says, you are adulterers. But why? Because the church is the bride of Christ. It's like the Lord brings us up into his fellowship and we're saved and redeemed. We're set apart people. And he brings us into community with one another. The local church is so powerful in the sanctification process of a believer. But he calls you into a community. He calls you into a church. And some people say, I don't even want to go to church. I know that being a Christian, 
you know, just because we go to church doesn't make us a Christian, but we should desire to be in fellowship with the brothers and sisters of Christ. We should desire that. But some people are like, you know, I would rather not be in the house of God because I've got other things that are more important to me. And we can't talk about every once in a while. I'm talking about a consistent pattern of not being in the house of the Lord because the things of the Lord do not have a priority because the world has crept in. And one day we'll stand in front of the Lord and give an account for our lives. And what makes us think that we want to spend eternity with God when we don't even want to spend a Sunday afternoon with Him? And I know that Sunday afternoon does not make us a Christian. But what I'm saying, though, it's this priority of falling in love with the world. We start nibbling on the world. It's that apple. We take a bite and another and another. Think of it this way. There's no way, if you're human and you're normal, you can eat one or two Pringles potato chips. You will devour half of it. And then you will put it down and hide it and come right back to it. You will not have one bowl of Captain Crunch. You will come back and have another one. You'll just keep coming back. You don't even know why you do it, but you'll do it. And that's what the world is. It's enticing. And think about these mighty men of God throughout history who were nibbling on things they should have been nibbled on, and they went down. And their spiritual lives, they're giants in compared to us, and we think it can't happen to us. Do you know how many men, I've been a pastor now, full, I've been a pastor for over 13 years, how many men cannot believe that what happened in their marriage started by this way over here. How did it get from this, and just fill in the blanks, from this to this? Nibbling on the apple. Biting things that don't belong to you. And crash. So the warning is important. It's important. He loves them enough to tell them the truth. The truth. You see, the pursuit of worldly desires that constant pursuit. Listen, it makes you an enemy of God. That, that's scary. The consistent pursuit of the world makes you an enemy of God. I wonder how many people in the day of judgment the Lord is going to say, depart from me, you work of iniquity, I never knew you. I wonder how many. Only the Lord knows. So he's saying, be transformed by God, not the world. Seek first his kingdom, not your kingdom. And everybody says amen to that. I say amen to that. But this is hard to live. Easy to preach, hard to live. Because we become like what we worship. But true worship, True worship will make us more like God. Are you more like God? If the answer is no, then think about what you're worshiping. If you're not sure, where are you spending your time and your talent and your treasure? That's what you're worshiping, likely, right? So true worship will make us more like God. And what? think about the Lord. Think about this resurrected Jesus that we're going to be talking about on Easter how he went to the cross, he was slaughtered for our iniquities, he was, he was laid in that tomb, and on the third day he rose again, he defeated death, he defeated sin. This Jesus Christ that I'm talking about today, think about him. He's one who laid down his life for the sheep, and then he tells the members of a church, 
He tells the Christians, would you sacrifice your lives for one another? Not to go to a cross, but would you lay down your lives for one another? Would you allow yourself to uh, have a communication with people or, or to be in fellowship with people that you might disagree on? Can, can you do that? Can you be gracious when someone is in a mood? <laughs> Anybody ever been in a mood? I've been in a mood. Like, what does it even mean? But we know what it means, right? But again, this concept, this truth statement about Christ laying down his life for the sheep, think about Philippians 3, 6, 8, just as we think about this particular scripture. It says, you know, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Are your friends worth dying for? Are your friends that you have in your life, the church, are you willing to say a difficult thing because you love them? Are you willing to encourage them when they may not deserve what you think is encouragement. Because sometimes people just do dumb things. And the greatest thing we can do is not to just beat them over the head. We bring them in and we say, how are you? I've noticed, remember the tongue? I've noticed the way you've been speaking and the way you've been acting. It seems like your tongue is telling on you. What's going on? Let's talk about it. Let's, let's, let's do lunch. Let's do breakfast. Let's talk, right? So it's not just about hammering somebody. It's loving them, but you're going to get to that conversation because they belong to the body. They belong to Christ. Think about it. These are Christ's ambassadors, less than perfect. But Christ says, do life with one another. Let's talk about these things in the context of the local church. Let's talk about these things. Let's love one another because tension in the church is normative Christianity. Now, some of you might be thinking, Charlie, do you have problems going on in the church? No, that's not what I'm talking about. I just happen to land here. There's always problems, but, but what I, I want you to grab is it's normal to disagree. Totally normal. Because we're people. Pastors. You're not going to believe this. You're just not going to believe it. It's going to be hard. I want you to just... Just think about it and drink deeply from what I'm ready to tell you. Pastors are wrong sometimes. Not a lot. You guys have a responsibility. When Charlie goes sideways or says something ridiculous, you've got to call me out graciously. But we need each other. We need each other is the point. All of us are to be held accountable to one another, not just to the Lord, to one another, but ultimately to the Lord. And some will just say, you know, I hear this, you know, how was your week? Man, I was buried this week. Who isn't buried? Is there anybody this week that said, you know, it was one of those weeks, I just had more time than I knew what to do with. It was crazy. I, I, st I just spent the last couple of days uh, just playing Pac-Man and twirling my thumbs. It was awesome. Nobody says that. Most of you say I was buried except for Charlie Pfeiffer, who's retired, and he's still buried. Listen, here, here's the deal, you guys. When you feel buried, yeah, welcome to the club. 
Jesus was buried, and he resurrected himself, and he says, those who belong to me, when you feel buried, I will resurrect you this side of eternity to do the things I've commanded you to do, to do the things I want you to do for his good pleasure. We, we listen, we work for an audience of one. We are at the beck and call of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he says, jump, we say, how high? That's what we do. So what's the problem that James wants to expose? Or what are some more problems that James is trying to expose? Let me give you a few. He's saying, your desires are wrong. I think we got that. Your desires are wrong. There are wants that you have, church, believers, that are wrong. There are motives that are wrong. There are pleasures that are wrong. You're seeking after the wrong things. The world, playing around with the world. But ultimately, it's, it's pointing to something. Many in the church have started to go to an attraction. There's an attraction to the world, and that is wrong, James says. James is warning against worldly behavior. Listen, when someone calls you out for whatever reason, do you thank them? Or do you justify it? You see, what James is getting at, he's saying this type of behavior, if left unchecked, will destroy marriages, friendships, and even churches. This type of behavior, the tongue and the heart, the tongue previously and now the heart, is going to destroy everything in its path. Life is but a vapor. Anne Pettigrew went home to be with Jesus on Friday. She lived 95 years. I promise you, she's not looking to come back here. She's in glory. She has the hope of eternity. That day that she trusted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, when she repented of her sins and placed her faith in Jesus Christ, it is now been official that that's the greatest decision she ever made in her life. And guess what, brothers and sisters? So it will be for you. But while we're here, we have to pay attention to our tongue and our hearts. Point number two is friendship with God. We talked about friendship with the world. Now let's look at friendship with God, 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To live for God, to be a people that truly live for God, requires resources that are only given from above, that are given from God. God never intended for the people of God to live on our own resources. He always intended for us to live on His resources. As you've heard it said many a times, if God guides he provides. He provides, right? Whatever it is that God requires of us, whatever it is, whatever He requires of us, then understand this. He who, we must understand that He who provides 
this one that provides will ensure that we will have everything that we need. Everything that we need to achieve, he'll make sure we have the needs met. All that is required, all that's needed, he will give it to us. God's grace is sufficient in all things. What's he calling you to do? God's sufficient, God's grace is sufficient in all things. Some of us think not those things, though. No, your things, the things you've been praying about, those things where you're seeking first the kingdom of God, your will, Father, done, not mine. He will be faithful to you. Some say, but you, you know, we see in the text, you don't have what you want. We see that, right? James said, you don't have what you want. Some are griping, they don't have what they want. He says, you don't have victory over your tongue. You don't have victory over your selfish desires. It's because you're not asking. I keep saying the same dumb things. I keep saying, doing the same dumb things. Well, Scripture says you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. So not are we not asking, sometimes we're asking wrongly. He's saying what you're asking for, you're asking for immature things. It's like, the, again, as we said over and over again, give me, give me, give me, my name is Jimmy. It's that prayer. He's saying, no, it's not about you. Because when you're truly saved, when you're truly regenerated, your prayer life changes. You talk differently. It says some are not talking differently. Or you used to, but you're starting to talk selfish again. Transformed people have a transformed prayer life. So it is. We as God's people desire an outpouring of God's grace, but that only comes from above. And if we want that, we have to humble ourselves, and we need to humble ourselves before him, and when we do, we will experience an outpouring of his amazing grace. Why would he not want to give us these things that help to advance the kingdom? He'll give it to us. But listen, a humble man draws near a prideful man that a prideful man draws God away. One says, Come to me, and the other one is stinky, right? There is more grace available to you than what you realize. Notice it says there is more grace available. More, more, more based upon what you need. Whatever it is that you need, there's more grace available. So here's something you're not going to hear very often. So be needy. I bet you never thought to yourself that you could ever just be needy and people would like it. The Lord does. Be needy. Be needy. Oh, God, I need more of your grace. I can't do this unless I have more of your grace. Be needy for God. Be dependent on God. But then James goes on in verses 6 through 10, and he gives seven commands. I can't exegete all of them, but in verses 6 through 10, we see seven commands, seven imperatives. In other words, if you want this type of life, these are the things you do. Okay? Look at these seven commandment, commands. Verse 7. Here's the first one. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. You want me? You want me to redeem your life, transfer? Submit yourself to me. What about this other one in verse 7? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Another imperative, you double-minded. 
Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Another command in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Brothers and sisters, remember this. We have three enemies in this world. If you are a Christian, you've got three enemies. You've got the world, you've got the flesh, and you've got the devil. That's your enemy. The world is your enemy. We must be aware of these three enemies. They are, are always looking for an opportunity just to crack the door open and get in there. Just one little bite of the apple. Just one little taste. We know the Lord says, taste and see that I am good. And the enemy says the same thing. The counterfeit says something similar. But when we take a bite of that, metaphorically, it ends badly for us. The commands that we see here, let's look at one. That when we resist the devil, the devil will flee. So we're being told here, to take an active stance against the God of this world. Are you taking a stance against the God of this world? It's not by accident, beloved, that James first calls us, first calls this church to submit to God. It's only in the power that God supplies that a successful resistance a successful resistance against evil can be accomplished. Ephesians 6.13 reminds us, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You want to stand firm? He says, take a look at these imperatives and make them so in your life. Have your brothers and sisters help you to be this type of man or woman. Because, as it says in the text, when we draw near to God, He will, in fact, draw near to us. And this is what it looks like to submit to God. What does it look like to submit to God, to draw near to God? Submitting to God is recognizing that your weakness to stop fighting and to surrender to Him as your ultimate, final, and last authority, right? So, Submitting to God is recognizing your weakness. It's recognizing that you need to stop fighting. It's recognizing that you need to surrender to him as the ultimate and final authority. Who gets the last word in your decisions? Is it God? Or is it the world? But notice in verse 7, he doesn't say submit to each other. That's not a bad thing, but in this context, he says submit to to what? It says, uh, you know, submit to him. Submit to him. James is going after the main thing. James is going after the core issue. The problem is pride. And so the core answer to all of this is humility. We cannot do the imperatives without the humility, without the transformed life. So he says, now cleanse your hands. This is in that imperative. Cleanse your hands. What is that, verse 8? Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. What does this mean? He's saying, even after you come to a saving faith, continue to repent. Repentance is not that one and done thing, right? It's not Kentucky basketball. It's, it's, it's saying, it, I'm going to continue to repent. 
I'm going to cleanse my hands. I'm going to purify my heart. It means to regularly repent of sin. Prideful people don't repent because they don't think they did anything wrong. Somebody else did. But in verses 7, 10, 7 through 10, it is considered, listen, in verses 7 through 10, it's considered one of the greatest uh, illustrations or word pictures of repentance in the entire Bible. You want to know what repentance looks like? Look at verses 7 through 10. It's a beautiful word picture of repentance. Martin Luther said this. He said, only a humble man, only a humble man can receive the word of God. And only a humble man will obey what he hears. So he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, verse 10, and he will exalt you. I don't have enough time to cover the rest of what I have written out here, but I want to pause and talk about a book that was written by Martin Lloyd-Jones on his book, Revival. And as he began to explain revival, as he, did a sub, as, he, as he studied it, he said, one of the things that I noticed about revival is it starts with repentance. It starts with a hunger and thirst after righteousness. It starts with men and women seeing their sin the way that God sees their sin. So we're talking about those that are mature in the faith, and now they see their sin. Have you ever noticed when you, the, more, the longer you're a Christian, you see things, and you go, man, I can't believe I even did that. And like you're, you're more aware of your sin. But revival starts when people understand the, the, how heinous their sin is, when we recognize the price that was, be, that was paid for us. To trust God completely, you have to understand and recognize and believe with your whole heart that God will give you grace in your humility, and he will be the one to raise you up, that Christ will always do the heavy lifting. So what's our application? Let me give you a couple of things. The first thing is I would ask you, based upon this text, when was the last time that you grieved over your sin? got alone with God and just grieved, or maybe came to the altar. You go, that's kind of a, a downer. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's uplifting to get that off of your chest and confess before the Lord and say, Lord, help me. I'm a needy recipient of your grace. Or maybe consider this as an application question. What is causing chaos in your relationships? What is it? That's between you and the Lord. Consider that. Here's two things that you can consider for application. What does God want to see happen in that relationship? And then at the same time, think about what Satan wants to see happen in that relationship. Think about that. And then right now, think about what's actually happening in your own life. What part of this text ministered to you and what are you going to do about it? That's getting to the heart of the matter. And if you're not sure, consider asking God to search your heart. Asking God to help you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, to love your neighbors, love the person across the street that you might be inviting. It's not just a word for the church, but it is for the church, but it can be applied outside of the church. When a heart is changed, when a heart is transformed, it's noticeable. But let God change your heart. He promises to do so because he loves us. So he teaches us. So 
praise the Lord for that.